Welcome to The Common Rounds. Medical education for medical students by medical students. In today's talk, we'll be covering thoracic aortic aneurysms. So an aneurysm is a pathological dilatation of a blood vessel. You have two types of aneurysms. You have a true aneurysm, which involves all vessel wall layers, or a false aneurysm or pseudoaneurysm, where you have disruption of the intimal and medial layers, but these layers are contained within the adventitia. There are other important definitions to be familiar with. So we have a fusiform aneurysm, which is where the entire circumference of the vessel segment is involved. You can also have a secondary aneurysm, where a portion of the blood vessel segment circumference is involved. Before we talk about the pathophysiology, let's quickly cover the histology of blood vessels. So as I alluded to, there are three layers in a blood vessel. You have the tunica external. You may have also heard this being called the adventitia. And this is comprised of collagen and elastic fibers. You have the tunica media, which is composed of small muscles mixed with or without elastic fibers. And in arteries, it's separated from other tunics by external and internal elastic layers. And finally, you have the tunica interna. You might have also come across the term intima. And this is composed of endothelial and supporting basement membrane layers. So in terms of the pathogenesis of uh, thoracic aortic aneurysms, these aneurysms in general are ultimately a consequence of degradation or abnormal production of elastic and collagen in blood vessels. There are a number of potential contributing causes, such as connective tissue disorders, like Marfan's or Ellen Danlos syndrome. They can be aerogenic, caused by um, stent placement. It can be due to vasculitis, such as giant cell arteritis or Takayasu's, or infective, such as a fungal infection from syphilis aortitis, TB or salmonella, and finally, atherosclerosis and bicuspid aortic valves may contribute to the development of an aneurysm. So ultimately, the underlying pathogenesis revolves around inflammation. If you have inflammation, which leads to oxidative stress and proteolysis and degeneration of connective tissues in the aorta, this could be brought about by the matrix metalloproteinases, which degrade elastin and collagen, and that's called medial degeneration. And ultimately, the aorta loses its tensile strength and ability of the aorta to then respond to stretch is weakened. It can also be brought about by mechanical stress and atherosclerosis, which further contributes to aneurysm formation and weakening of the aortic wall. And other important risk factors to be in mind involves hypertension, smoking, and the male gender. So the risk of rupture really varies depending on the size of the aneurysm and the symptoms patients present with. So a thoracic aneurysm of less than 4 centimeters in diameter has a 2-3% to chance of rupture per year, whereas a thoracic aortic aneurysm greater than 6 centimeters in diameter has a 7% chance of rupture. So size is really important. Now what are some of the signs and symptoms that patients can present with? Most patients in the community are probably asymptomatic, but patients can experience compressive symptoms associated with an enlarging aorta. This could result in shortness of breath if the trachea is compressed, cough, dysphagia if the esophagus is involved, and a hoarse voice from recurrent laryngeal nerve involvement. Patients can also have symptoms of aortic regurgitation because if you're stretching the aorta, it could also stretch the um, aortic valves. So these patients can present with syncope, hypertension, and heart failure from the increased preload associated with the regurgitation. What are some potential differential diagnoses to keep in mind when you're considering this pathogenesis and pathology? Aortic dissection is a huge concern because these vessels could dissect or it could rupture. Pericarditis and myocarditis may present with similar appearing symptoms. You want to rule out acute coronary syndromes or an MI. You also want to rule out heart failure and other life-threatening conditions like a pneumothorax or a pulmonary emboli. To help you do that, we need to consider some investigations. So let's start with the easy investigations first. So let's do some blood workup to evaluate the patient, looking at electrolytes. So for example, looking at patient's renal function, which could be deranged if there's ischemic injury. Looking at full blood count, which may be elevated if there's an infective process 
or a reduced hematocrit if there's uh, a bleed, looking at blood grouping and cross-matching in case we need to transfuse the patient following a bleed, and troponins if clinically indicated to rule out a myocardial infarction. ECG is also very important to perform, and that's to rule out myocardial infarction, but also to assess for any other electrolyte abnormalities, like a um, ventricle strain or pericarditis, which may show itself on an ECG. But I think the most important investigation to keep in mind is to utilize imaging. You can perform an x-ray very quickly, and this might assist in differentiating cardiac versus pulmonary causes, a widened superior mediastinum, or a compression and displacement of tracheas, or the left main bronchus, may allude to potential aortic aneurysm or a pneumothorax, particularly if there's displacement of the trachea. With this in mind, CT with contrast is probably the procedure of choice. It's useful for assessing their uh, aneurysm size, extent of involvement, and the presence of dissection. Other imaging modalities you can consider include magnetic resonance angiography or a contrast angiography, which are not commonly done. Transesophageal echocardiography is another important imaging mode that you can utilize. It examines the aorta and the valves and can be performed rapidly at the bedside if CT scan isn't available immediately. Now, how do we treat these patients with aortic um, aneurysms? Well, if they're asymptomatic and they're not at a high risk of rupture, then you perform CT or MRI monitoring every 6 to 12 months. If they present with a suspected rupture or at an imminent risk of rupture, you want to consider this as a medical emergency and begin with your ABCDs and ensure the patients are hemodynamically stable before you proceed to further interventions. You want to address any life-threatening complications such as a bleed by giving them fluids, blood transfusions if indicated, improving their oxygenation by giving them oxygen supplements, and aggressive blood pressure control to prevent further bleeding. Some pharmacological treatments you can consider include beta blockers and ACE inhibitors in asymptomatic patients to manage their hypertension and optimize their blood pressure control, and also encourage patients to undergo smoke cessation, managing their lipids as well is another important consideration. But having said that, if they are presenting to hospital with a potential rupture or a rapidly enlarging aneurysm, surgical or other interventional procedures are really important to consider. These are predominantly indicated for symptomatic patients, for patients that present with ruptured aortic aneurysms, patients presenting with dissections, fistula formations, coactation, or mycotic aneurysms. And the nature of the intervention really depends on the, the size. So in an ascending aorta, if the diameter is greater than 5.5 or two times the normal lumen, or in the descending aorta, if it's greater than 6.5 centimeters, then you might really think about interventions. Other important considerations include subtracting 0.5 from all those values I've mentioned if the patient has a history of myofans. Other important conditions that might influence whether to intervene or not includes a family history of aneurysms or connective tissue disorders. If they have a bicuspid aortic valve, aortic stenosis, if they present with dissections, or in patients undergoing cardiac operations, or if the aneurysm is growing at a rapid rate of one centimeter per year. All of these may be indications to go ahead and intervene in this patient. So this brings my presentation to an end. I hope you found the talk useful. If you found our revision talks in general useful, we would really appreciate it if you could write a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or if you're a visual learner, be sure to check out our YouTube channel for notes and videos. Our episode today was put together by our executive producer Gautam and our co-editor Cindy. For notes, elective experiences, and much more study resources, visit our website on thecommonrounds.wordpress.com or visit us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. If you like our episodes, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It means a lot to us. You've been listening to The Common Rounds. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.